0: And I'm Gabe.
1: And today we are talking about Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata.
0: You know the one. What else is there to say? Uh, I mean, well, I guess we'll find out.
1: Oh, yeah, that's true. okay. Oh
0: sure, what do you want to start out with?
1: Well, I'm sure that any of our audience members out there who know a thing or two about this piece are probably thinking, wait a second, Beethoven didn't actually call it Moonlight Sonata and therefore it's not actually about moonlight.
0: Twist. Ooh. Ooh.
1: Well, (laughs) to that I have two answers. One, Musical meaning does not have to begin and end with composer intention. True. And this is a thing that I see a lot in classical music fandom and even classical music, like undergrads or grad students. And I don't know why this has persisted so much in classical music specifically. I mean, if you're talking about other kinds of music or other kinds of art, people don't seem to have this kind of locked in view that whatever the composer or the author or the artist thought has to be the be-all end-all of interpretation or understanding but for some reason in classical music that seems to be a prevalent view and i'm here to tell you musicologists don't think that way
0: and as a composer and teacher about all kinds of music i am inclined to agree uh (laughs) i know that in my own job as a composer it is often the task to kind of convince people why they should care about you my own music and i try to be very honest but i also you know maybe embellish Mm -hmm. or maybe get a little picky choosy about which aspects to share so like I tell students all the time take everything you have ever heard from an artist with a brick of salt (laughs) (laughs) and I guess in this case that includes take everything that you've heard that is maybe not from the artist i.e not from Beethoven with as much salt as you want because you're entitled to have as many opinions on Beethoven's Opus 27 Number 2 Sonata as anybody who called it Moonlight in the first place. Mm -hmm. And if you like that it got called Moonlight, cool. Guess Mm -hmm. what? I like that it's called the Moonlight Sonata too.
1: Me too. (laughs) And I think that there's something about it that we will definitely get into that suggested itself as indicating Moonlight to perhaps many people over the centuries. But I do want to just briefly talk about where this name may or may not have come from
0: yes tell us tell us (laughs) meredith where did this name may or may not have come from
1: so there's a story floating around the world including the internet that a guy named ludwig Rellstab came up with the title moonlight sonata in the 1830s so after beethoven was dead and the story goes that he compared it to moonlight shining off some lake in Switzerland. Okay, I did some research. I cannot find any source from Rel Stab that actually says that. The only thing that I can find that this came from was an 1850s biography of Beethoven by a guy named Ludwig von Lentz. And Ludwig von Lentz, among other things, is famous for having popularized the idea that Beethoven had three style periods. Which is also a thing people talk about to this day. Anyway, he apparently said in his an article or something he wrote about Beethoven that, oh, we need to stop calling this piece Moonlight Sonata because Beethoven didn't come up with that title, it was come up with by this guy, Rellstab. But he doesn't have any source for where he got this, so I have no idea, like, where this came from exactly. Turns out Rael's did actually compare the piece to Moonlight but in a much more detailed way and it was in a story called Theodore that he wrote in the 20s and I don't know if this is where he got that but anyway this is a little factoid of musicology that or music history that I find very interesting. It's a great example of a popular understanding of music history being literally stuck in the past.
0: (laughs) And in this case the past being that one guy said another guy called this thing the Moonlight Sonata when he probably didn't and by saying we shouldn't call it, that resulted in all of us calling it that.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Basically, Um, although (laughs) it was actually being called that uh, in the 30s in publications and things. It obviously had some circulation before this, and apparently this guy, Lenz, was like, no, composer intent is all that matters.
0: So between Lenz and Relstab and every other publisher in Europe, it became known as the Moonlight Sonata. Yeah. <laughs> or possibly none of them, except for the publishers, because they put it on the thing.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah.
0: Although I noticed that in my edition it does not say that, so...
1: No, mine neither.
0: Yeah. But we still, we know what it is. We know, we know what it is. Yeah,
1: exactly. Yeah. No, yeah. One,
0: no one, I have Actually, and that's another <laughs> interesting angle to it. No one actually calls it Opus 27, number two. No. I, I mean, like, maybe if you say that to someone, they'll be like, wait, is that the Moonlight? Or is it number one? <laughs> but that's about as good as it gets in terms <laughs> of the proper title. Or which actually isn't even really the proper title because it has a subtitle. Mm-hmm. Beethoven did give it a subtitle. hmm right it's not just sonata in c sharp minor opus 27 number 2 it is sonata quasi una fantasia mm-hmm. which i think is a good little point to help us sort of kind of transition into why one might be inclined to think of it as having anything to do with moonlight or fantastical imagery or whatever because it is a fantasy and mm-hmm. Granted, for Beethoven to call something a fantasia did not necessarily mean fantasy in the kind of contemporary sense of imagining worlds.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Um, You know, it meant something more improvisatory in style. But, you know, as soon as we start thinking about improvisation, that makes us think about the mind and Beethoven's mind. And what was he imagining as he wrote this piece (laughs) and found his way from note to note? Because i don't know how he came up with this thing (laughs) i mean (laughs) it's really good and it does not follow structural conventions that we're used to it does follow harmonic conventions that we're used to but in a way that is astonishing Mm -hmm. so to take all of that together and come up with the idea that this could be evocative of something like the moonlight strikes me as reasonable
1: yeah definitely I mean, there are a lot of details that we should definitely talk about, but I do want to bring up this very interesting article that I recently found. Uh, It's called In Defense of Moonlight by a musicologist named Sarah Waltz, which I actually had the privilege of meeting her at a conference that she helped organize on William Herschel, who is a very interesting music and space figure that we should totally talk about.
0: Uh, Yeah, we'll be coming back to Herschel probably more than once in the future.
1: Anyway, Sarah Waltz is awesome, and she's a space music person. Anyway, in this article, she talks about how the fantasia and how the moon and all these different other kinds of musical and poetical uh, ideas kind of came to coalesce around this piece and around very similar pieces in regards to them being quintessentially romantic. So this piece is probably one of the more famous piano pieces ever. Ever. Right? And... (laughs) Of course, it captured the imagination of early 19th century people, listeners, critics, um, as being a very romantic kind of piece. And Fantasia, I know Fantasia has kind of a a musical genre slash structure meaning, but it could also point to a kind of poetic or imaginary kind of meaning, too. And
0: because when you say romantic, you mean romantic in the literary sense, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. But, well, yeah. Romantic as in, like, the romantic movement in literature and then also in music. For which Beethoven was seen as kind of a a predecessor to the romantic style by many people. Um, But in the article she talks about how the moon became a very, very important symbol and image for romantic poets, especially. And she compares it against... The sun being the symbol for the Enlightenment, which is kind of the the era that preceded the Romantic era. And so the moon became associated with things like dreams and the imaginary and, you know, subtlety and uh, all these kind of things that we associate with Romanticism.
0: You know, for some reason, the language that you were using just now made me think of the word fictive. Hmm. And I, you know, not in connection with almost anything. I, I just, I like the idea of a fictive entity, right? Like something that you think you hold in your mind as a real thing, but it's not, right? Hmm. And for some reason, in my weird sort of music theorist brain, I feel like this word is really useful in the context of this piece. Because of one of two features that maybe even both features, possibly two of two features, uh, <laughs> in the first movement of the Moonlight Sonata that to me kind of are emblematic of the piece as a whole. Um, and the one that I'll mention first here now is a particular chord that Beethoven's like obsessed with in this, and that chord is a chord that in music theory land we call the Neapolitan. Mm. And the Neapolitan, just in case you've not, you know, studied a whole lot of music theory. Or even if
1: you have, like me, and I just always forget. (laughs) So
0: (laughs) Dr. Gabe is here to remind us all about what the deal with the Neapolitan is. The Neapolitan is, so in Music Land, right, the chord that is the same as the key name, so in this case the sonata is in C-sharp minor, and we have a chord that is C-sharp minor, And that sounds like that, right? That's the chord that Beethoven starts the piece with. It's the chord that establishes the identity of the whole kind of harmonic world. There are other chords that work with C sharp minor to help make the piece feel like it's coherent, but the Neapolitan is a chord that is not like the others. The Neapolitan in its basics form would sound like this. Which, if you kind of think about it, you can hear it as something that's close to that C-sharp minor chord, but different. Mm -hmm. And in addition to being different, it's not part of the expected world of C-sharp minor. Mm -hmm. Beethoven uses this chord everywhere in this piece. Like, everywhere. Mm -hmm. And I think the reason why the word fictive comes to mind in relation to it is because if I were to try to explain now like how you actually construct that chord it would take another half an hour and I don't really (laughs) want to do that but that in and of itself is sort of suggestive of the idea that the Neapolitan is a chord that one can only imagine right it's not a chord that falls out of the sky naturally in any key right. It's a chord that, like, you pretty much only ever learn about when you're in college and you take music theory classes and you study the Moonlight Sonata, right? Like, so it's a chord, and I mean, not which is not to say that it's unique to Beethoven. Lots and lots of people use the Neapolitan before, during, and since his time. Mm-hmm. But it is a chord that does a really good job of sort of defying traditional contexts and traditional analysis and... Part of what makes it, what, you know, I, I said that this is one of two features of the piece that I get really excited about. And part of why I got excited about it in this case is because Beethoven finds ways to use the Neapolitan it, that nobody else would think to do. Hmm. You know, that main note of C sharp. The last thing a normal person would think to do is play the Neapolitan on top of that note. It's an incredible clash and yeah. yet that is something that not only he does once not even twice he does it like many times mm-hmm. um, I mean he also does it in the third symphony but that's a, <laughs> but 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 not to nearly to the extent of saturation as happens in this piece mm-hmm. so you have this chord that you know like I said fictive for some reason was the word that came to mind but it also feels like it gets at that slipperiness of this harmonic signature that so pervades the the piece and so defines its overall feeling and sound Hmm.
1: yeah that's really interesting
0: i mean i don't know if there's anything particularly lunar about the neapolitan um
1: well i don't know i I think that there's something i'm trying to wrap my head around this idea trying to think of the correct word it's eluding me like Elusive, moon, like moonlight. <laughs> like moonlight. <Yeah. laughs> it
0: slips through. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, it's built on the flat too. Yeah, mm-hmm. Neapolitan. Yeah. There's something otherworldly. Well, yeah. about it.
0: Yeah, it's because actually, you so see, you said okay, so that was part of what I wasn't going to explain, right? If you're well, thinking,
1: well, we don't have to go into that. No, I was just...
0: but it is kind of cool. I mean, you said flat too, and I just, you know, so you've got mm-hmm. C sharp is one. D sharp would be two and that gives you the first part of the scale but in between one and two is yeah. flat two mm. which is the note upon which the Neapolitan is based so yeah. it is like it's between the cracks of yeah. the yeah
1: it's shadowy too
0: Ooh, shadowy
1: yeah well, which <laughs> is it's something that abounds in moonlight yeah yeah
0: oh can i tell you the second thing yes because the second thing is even more shadowy Ooh, go okay. okay okay my shadow comes from a performance direction that n- nobody follows
1: oh yeah yeah i have many things to say about this okay
0: too. Go. oh good so the first movement has a tempo the tempo is adagio sostenuto, right a sustained slow movement underneath that beethoven writes this Very long sentence, like a legit (laughs) sentence in Italian. Si deve suonare tutto questo pezzo delicatissimamente e senza sordino. Beautiful. Thank you. I've practiced. (laughs) Um, Which basically translates to, for the whole piece, the sound should be extraordinarily delicate and without mutes. Senza sordino. And when Beethoven says without mutes he's talking about the dampers on the piano right so he's saying the whole thing should be played delicately and without the dampers on the piano now a lot of people would say oh well you know so you would do that like normal let the chord ring and then you when the chord changes you press on the little pedal and no 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 he says senza sordino none of the mutes Mm -hmm. and how do we know that he really means it because in the first measure of the piece, he repeats that. Mm -hmm. Sempre pianissimo e senza sordino. So within, it's the same measure, twice in the same measure, he has two verbal indications telling you to play softly and without the dampers. Now the effect of this is that every time the chords change, the sound of the previous chord is supposed to ring into the measure. Mm -hmm. That means there are parts in this piece where if you do that properly, especially on a modern piano today, The sound becomes like unintelligible because you have, oh, the shadow of the harmonies past, like hanging out over the chords that follow them. Mm -hmm. And I've got like, I don't know about seven or eight recordings of this piece. And I was going through them before our conversation and on only two of them do the pianists actually do this to Mm. any appreciable degree it's Mm -hmm. like and and the only two that do it are people who play on 18th century instruments Mm -hmm. part of the logic being that an 18th century instrument it doesn't sustain as long so the effect would be less messy if you did this on a steinway it would become very 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 messy Mm -hmm. so it's kind of reasonable to not do it but then you lose the shadow
1: yeah Yeah, I love that too, and uh, there's a lot of, like, modern performance practice debate over, like, what to do about this, because, as you mentioned, the 18th century piano didn't sustain nearly as long, and the pianos people typically play on, it doesn't sound good. Um, Although, sorry,
0: you know, we say it doesn't sound good. I, I still want to hear it. Like, I still want people to do it. it, What does it mean to not sound good? It's, you know, it's not like like Beethoven didn't know it was going to sound like a mess.
1: No, I do think that that's super duper intentional. And I mean, it really does give it a very specific kind of ambiguity and kind of fuzziness, which is so indicative of nighttime landscape, especially because you have some light but not enough that the distinctions between objects are super clear. So you might not be able to tell where one tree begins and one ends. And, and so everything kind of blurs together a little bit, just like the harmony is supposed to do in the piece. And actually I was reading the introduction to this, (laughs) this score that I have that's edited by Arthur Schnabel and he like added a bunch of expression markings and he also added pedal markings for this. Um, of course he said to pedal every time the harmony changes. Um, and this is why he says <laughs> also the pedal marks are handled with utmost restraint, this being the only means toward achieving the transparency and purity in which sound is given life, turns into speech develops form in the intertwining of structures and contrasts within phrases and patterns oh and I feel like this is such an enlightenment way of looking at This piece. And this piece is not supposed to be clear. It's not supposed to be pure. It's not supposed to have its clear forms and structures. It's supposed to be shadowy and like ambiguous and and liminal perhaps. And so I I don't know. I think this is also potentially just a case of, you know, 20th century performance practice where people are like, we must get it exactly right. Right.
0: Right. Or like even... You know, thinking about kind of the harmonic sophistication that I was sort of alluding to, all these ways in which he uses the Neapolitan, mm-hmm. it, it would be a very 20th century thing to be like, we must appreciate every one of these moments for the genius of voice leading that it is, or mm-hmm. we could be like normal feeling humans and be like, that sounds amazing, Mm -hmm. right? Like, you know, Beethoven lands himself in B minor and then he's like, just kidding, B major, (laughs) you know? And not like in the little, like, kind of cutesy way that a Baroque piece ends, Mm -hmm. you know? It's like really deliberate. He's like, no, you're gonna hear me move that note by a half step, it's gonna feel like the world has changed. Yes. Except because you are a responsible pianist following the no mutes requirement, You will discover that when minor turns into major it doesn't because you're going to hear both at the same time for a while. And to give some credit to our boy Relstab, he was talking about moonlight reflecting on a lake. So forget about distinguishing the outlines of trees. What is, what does the moonlight do on a lake? I don't know where the sky ends and the sea begins. I don't know nothing. Mm-hmm. That's a, talk about an ambiguous liminal space, right? The boundary between a moonlit lake and the sky at night. Oh my. Mm-hmm. That's, exactly. Uh, there'd, yeah. be, there'd be dragons. <laughs> That's not <laughs> well, what yeah, that means. yeah, I mean, like, this is, like
1: <laughs> this is the part of human experience that romantic poets and artists really wanted to explore. Which is, I think, a reason why people latch onto this piece so so hard. Um, but another thing I wanted to say about the pedal thing is there, do you know Tom Bagan? He... For,
0: for the record, I shook my head no.
1: Oh. <laughs> okay. Well, Tom Bagan is cool. He's a pianist and Beethoven scholar. And his whole thing is he plays on historical instruments. And so he also has a lot of like interesting videos out there. And there's a video um, about pedals about sustained pedals. And uh, how that came into play in the Moonlight Sonata in this indication. And he actually talked about on kind of older 18th century pianos. Uh, knee levers. They had. Well, oh. before that, before they had the knee levers, they had this like little thing that you could like switch on that would just leave the dampers off. Oh. And he said that this was called Celestial Register. No. Celestial Register. No. Yes. Yeah.
0: No. Yeah. Uh huh. Really? Yes. That's amazing. Yeah. How did I not know that one?
1: I, I don't know. It's kind of a niche thing. Um, I'm a
0: niche kind of guy. But
1: he <laughs> he said that this was very a very popular instrument setup for a period of time because it's kind of like you had two instruments in one. We'll link the video in the description so you can go watch it. It's very interesting. Um, and then, it's it was with the advent of the knee thing. So before they developed the pedal, they developed like a little knee button thing that would lift up the dampers. That allowed you to actually, you know, turn it on and off at will so you can change it when you have chord changes. And so he was like, well, maybe Beethoven was just writing for this other kind of piano, even though he had the kind where you could change the harmonies. But he was like, you know, that was actually a very interesting sound. Um,
0: Well, and it makes me think of another interesting feature of this piece... I can imagine with an effect like that, and I'll, this is another thing. So the knee levers, right? Which I say plural because nowadays you've got just the one sustain pedal. Uh, the knee levers were often separated between registers. So you know, your right knee would lift the dampers for the treble register, and your left knee would lift them for the bass. And I've never seen anyone actually specify which one you should use in a in any score. I've never seen that. Mm. I just see general sort of pedal indications or damper indications like this one. But it's interesting to think about that effect because I can imagine if you turn off the dampers entirely and played in the upper register of an early piano, right? I can see where that celestial effect would come in because all those little high notes would just be twinkling and, Mm -hmm. you know, and and that, in fact, you actually still have on the modern piano Mm because the dampers kind of disappear all the way at the top end of the piano. Right. And it's also an interesting thing to think about, because if you play up there and the lower strings are free to vibrate, you'll hear all of the harmonics cause them to vibrate sympathetically, the lower strings. Mm -hmm. Alternatively, if you play in the low register and all the dampers are up, the high strings will vibrate sympathetically, so you'll get shimmer no matter what you do. Mm -hmm. It makes me think of the fact that one of the Moonlight Sonata's distinguishing characteristics is how much... Beethoven uses the low register of the piano and I mean we could talk probably for a few hours about how lowness and the moon at night might go together. Mm -hmm. Um, But to think about it just in the context of this effect that we're that we're thinking about having all of these dampers up but using maybe the wrong register you know Um, (laughs) for that effect where like if you are playing all in the low register yeah it'll cause some of the top ones to vibrate sympathetically but the low mess of sound will turn into this big ball of, of things and you, mm-hmm. wouldn't, you wouldn't be able to perceive that so much. So it, maybe he has that in mind, but he's using it in a way that would be not the wrong way to use it, but like, a, certainly a not intuitive way to use it. Mm-hmm. But then again, I think so many things with Beethoven, to think about what's intuitive is maybe not really the right, Maybe not really the right line of thinking, Mm. you know, especially since he writes so many low notes in so much of his keyboard music. I think that's kind of just a sound he likes. So let there be this one sonata where he like embraces all of that lowness.
1: Yeah. And actually, I do think that the sympathetic resonance is kind of part of what's supposed to be so magical about this. And I do think on 18th century pianos, it is more evident because the bass notes don't drown out the treble notes nearly so much as they do on modern especially grand pianos. So I, I was reading something about this, I think it was something by Charles Rosen and he was talking about how um, there is this kind of magical effect to the sympathetic resonance because it takes like a, a split second for that to kind of mellow and like emerge. Like once you hit a note and then the other notes kind of vibrate Yeah, and that's it. a
0: and that's a physical phenomenon. It's acoustic masking, Because right? mm-hmm. the the string Part of it, yeah, is that it'll take a short period of time for the string to start vibrating, but that happens fairly quickly. What's mm-hmm. more significant is that the sound of the string you actually strike will contain the frequency that's vibrating on the high one. So you have to wait for that thing to decay mm. before you can perceive as, a, as the resonant effect of the other thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Rosen talked about that. Robert Hatton talked about that with Schubert in the A Major Sonata, all of his bum, bum, Mm-hmm. Causing the 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 held chaya to like vibrate sympathetically, mm. and Elliot Carter like totally unrelated, uh, but Elliot Carter later he he explicitly calls on that effect. I mean a lot of people have called on that effect. Oh, sure. In in, in the twentieth century, but mm-hmm. um, but to think about Beethoven or people like Beethoven and Schubert in the late eighteenth early nineteenth century, just kind of like knowing that's part of how their instruments work and kind of secretly or semi secretly embedding these shimmering effects of resonance into their scores is Mm. that's an enticing concept
1: yeah and actually speaking of schubert and going back to that in defense of moonlight article she actually points out that there were a lot of potentially earlier responses to moonlight sonata that that may have been like oh yeah we hear this as moonlight including an art song by schubert called anden mond (laughs) d193 do you know it (laughs)
0: <laughs> Not off the top of my okay, head. Okay, I listened to it right before we <laughs> we uh,
1: started recording and it sounds almost exactly the same. <laughs> It's remarkably how, how close it is, and I mean Andenmon means to the moon, not like going to the moon, but addressing the moon. Um d
0: one ninety that would be a very, very early piece. Yeah, so. it was from
1: eighteen fifteen, I think.
0: You can imagine young teenage Schubert, who would likely have known the Moonlight Sonata surely, You know, thinking, Yes, this one, this sound.
1: Mm hmm. And it's, a, it's kind of in an ABA format, so you have a middle section, which I think is a little reminiscent of the second movement of the sonata. Not exactly, but the, the outer parts of the song. And she also talks about how, you know, like John Field's early nocturnes, and there were all sorts of things in the, in the early 19th century that had something to do with moonlight or with the night. That had this kind of what she calls a moonlight construction, where you have this low, kind of slow moving bass notes, you have a kind of middle register, either triplets or, you know, triad broken chords, and then you have this kind of floating melody on top that doesn't seem to necessarily have much to do with these kind of steady triplets in the middle.
0: Yeah, oh, well, that's another funny thing with this one. It's like, does the Moonlight Sonata have a melody? Dun-da-dum. <laughs> mm.
1: And actually, dum, da, dum. <laughs> this is another thing that I've heard that people are like, oh, it's not about moonlight. It's actually a funeral march.
0: A funeral march? Yeah, you know,
1: they do not totally wrong because a mm. lot of funeral marches have that kind of rhythm oh, yeah. with the repeated that? note. Da-da-da-da. Yeah, Something like
0: a that. a dactylic rhythm.
1: Yeah. Okay, so I have a couple other really interesting moments that I just want to mention before we uh, move on, but one of them is the fact that there are so many moments in this movement where Beethoven makes use of the parallel major or minor, so he'll be playing a chord that's, for example, in measure nine, we've got an E major chord. No, yeah, Yeah. And typically you don't just change the quality of a chord from one measure to the next but he does it he changes it to an E minor chord. And it's just this really really beautiful like sh- sinking moment because yeah. you sink the third of the chord. Yeah.
0: Well, and especially since it's you get a whole measure mm-hmm. right of you know uh, the I'll play the arpeggiation because it's okay. all I can handle right now. Yeah. And even that one, it's like you get a whole measure of E major and then a whole measure of E minor. Yeah. So and it's kind
1: of like, kind of like, I, don't know, I just imagine a cloud like going over yes. the moon or something. Well,
0: and this is the exact opposite of the gesture that I was talking about earlier, mm-hmm. which is only a few bars later, where he goes from yep. B minor to B major. And you're like, oh, the cloud's gone now. Yeah,
1: exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, and the other thing I wanted to talk about is. There's certain moments in the melody where, I mean, we talked about how the beginning is just repeating a note, but there are so many moments where it's just such a tiny, tiny range that the melody is in, like chromatically. Oh, yeah.
0: Well, because that's the Neapolitan thing, right after that major, minor, the, that B one.
1: Yes, I love that so much. You have this little delicious clash. Yeah. Um, where, it's the Neapolitan. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So it's like has a dissonant note on one side, then it moves to a dissonant note on the other side before finally resolving to the to the B.
0: Yeah, and I love that you talk about it as a small register, as a small thing, Mm -hmm. because it really is like you cannot have a more minimal melodic motion than that like in 12 tone equal tempered music which is what this is Mm -hmm. you cannot make that gesture up down and then back again any smaller than that that's that's it yep and it this gets me excited because i like small things Mm -hmm. and this is (laughs) it's a small thing but you know, I think part of what's so great about it is how it feels so momentous mm-hmm. and I mean I'm not skilled enough at the keyboard to really play it, but I think if you go if you go I, I hope, you know, maybe after listening to this podcast you'll go find your favorite recording of the Moonlights and and I think you'll recognize the moment where it does that. And what you'll notice is that before it completes that gesture, but um bottom what's going on underneath it deep in the bases Mm -hmm. you know so there's this incredible sense of actually bigness Mm. while the melody itself is yeah this tiniest little gesture the tiniest little motion
1: Mm. yeah
0: it's very mysterious
1: it is it's mysterious and it it's like (laughs) on the surface things look tiny and small but you know that behind what you can see is something huge Mm. and infinite perhaps
0: oh Infinite, like,
1: space? (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. This is partly why I I think, to the romantics, the moon was a symbol of the sublime. Yeah. Because, I mean, during the daytime, like, everything's beautiful and bright, but, you know, behind it, behind that sunny sky, once the sunny sky goes away, you can see there's so much more there than you could ever possibly have imagined.
0: That's good.